I think Quentin Tarantino definitely needs to be addressed. Uh, I, I think Quentin Tarantino needs to be stopped. Welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the podcast pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, perpetually ill, mm. uh, and I am here today, as always, with my other co-host. Uh, Pete Romberg, coming off being temporarily ill. <laughs> so that's Yeah, I've exciting. been sick for like three weeks. It's the worst. Yeah, you've got me uh, I apologize. Beat. To our listeners, if I cough into the microphone and destroy anybody's uh, listening pleasure, um, I'm sick and I can't help it. We are also joined today by return guest and friend of the podcast, Sarah Caputo. Sarah, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me. We're glad to have you back. Always happy to uh, talk talk. Uh, pop culture with you. Today, we are going to be revisiting the concept of toxic masculinity, uh, but in a slightly different manner. We are going to be looking at popularized and idealized versions of masculinity that maybe were not intended to be so, uh, and definitely veer more towards the intentionally toxic, uh, but misunderstood or misinterpreted. But before we get to that, as always, we are going to talk about what pop culture is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, Sarah, as our guest, how would you like to start uh, start us off? Well, I, this past week, watched the first season of the TV adaptation of What We Do in the Shadows. Mm-hmm. <gasps> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I love the movie. And I just, I hadn't watched the show because I don't have cable, but I saw it pop up on Hulu and I immediately binged it. And Matt Berry is just the finest comedic actor uh, of our age. And it was very fun. I bought a season pass to this show because it came out on FX and I don't get TV. And I was like... I will spend $20 so that I can watch this show. Uh, it was worth it. <laughs> yes. I've, I've only seen the first episode or two, but I love the movie and I really enjoyed the episodes I had seen. Uh, I just kind of, you know, fell off the wagon on it. Yeah. I was initially really skeptical about the whole concept because the movie was so good. And mm-hmm. I was like, I really hope this isn't the kind of thing that when they try and stretch it into a whole a TV series, like the concept gets thin or, um, you know, it suffers in some way. And I don't think that that was warranted. I think the show, I think the show is amazing. I think it made my, um, I'm trying to remember if I actually did a list of top TV shows for the decade. Uh, if I did, it would have been on it. Wow. (laughs) I think what I like best about it is it's really only similar in setup, like a documentary crew following vampires. But I mean, 
the difference between landing in New Zealand and landing on Staten Island is is amazing. <laughs> yes. And then never leaving Staten Island for some reason. <laughs> uh, Pete, what is stuck in your head today? Uh, well, I'm accidentally going to continue the uh, vampire theme. Um, I just watched the BBC, the, the recent BBC adaptation of Dracula. Uh, this is Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis's adaptation. Um, sort of in the vein of their Sherlock uh, adaptation with Ben de Cumberbatch. This is three... 90 minute episodes um it is it uses the spine of the book but goes in sort of like wildly different directions um i enjoyed the first episode really enjoyed the second episode and the third episode absolutely did not stick the landing uh the first 30 minutes were fun the last 30 minutes were i intellectually understood what they were doing but it did not work at all for me um Felt a lot like Moffat's run on Doctor Who, which I enjoy, but your mileage will kind of vary on that one. Um, that was the Matt Smith Doctor. Um, lots of fun inversions going on. So uh, it's on Netflix now. Definitely worth a look at if you enjoy Dracula. Um, it's certainly an interesting take on it. But uh, yeah, like I said, I, I was thoroughly unimpressed with the ending, which is frequently a problem with uh, Moffat and Gaddis's work. They are very clever. They want you to know that they're very clever, and sometimes the cleverness does not work out in the end. How does he treat Mina? This is my barometer for all Dracula fiction. Um, fine, she's not a major character, and what he does instead I think you will enjoy. But I don't want to say anything else for because I, I think it's it's good to go into this one kind of blind well i gotta tell you i i'm not really i have not heard or seen anything that would make me inclined to pursue it all right uh clace so... please place uh, bang the guy who plays dracula is fantastic um and the uh the other like the main female character the other main character of the book is or of the show is Dolly Wells, and she also does a fantastic job. Um, she's not playing Mina, but she's playing someone else um, who, uh, again, part of the, the twists and stuff that they've done with the book, um, I like what they've done, and, and she does a, a fantastic job. Mm. Do you want a spoiler for it? I mean, we can talk about it when we're not recording. All right, there we go. I just... Mina is such a good character, and I'm a little mystified as to why you would invent... If you're adapting Dracula, why would you invent a different character? It, it works for the... Based on all the other changes they're making, uh, it works. Like, they don't... Yeah, they kind of throw Mina to the side, but when she's on screen, she does a good job. Um, like, she's... She holds her own well enough, uh, but she's sort of like a less interesting female character in this adaptation um, because there's someone else who's more interesting. Well, so is this an adaptation of the book or is yes. this just a different Dracula story? It's, oh. I mean, it's, okay. a, it's a loose adaptation okay, of the book. <laughs> okay, Moffat. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk off air and, and you will either be like, that's interesting or that's nonsense and I have no interest in it. Um, yeah. Uh, 
I I just I can't I, I will never stop thinking about the oh god was it on Fox who adapted it with Jonathan Reese Myers as Dracula and it was bizarre nonsense but I also kind of loved it mm. <clears throat> I didn't even know that existed as a thing I didn't either <laughs> there's a Jonathan Reese Myers Dracula yes it was a TV show that I think got canceled after the first season um, because I was the only one who watched it. <laughs> it came out right around the. It came around, out right around the same time as um, the Sleepy Hollow TV show started, which was also bizarre nonsense, but a lot more fun. Um, so that ended up running for like five seasons. Um, uh, but yeah, they turn him into like an energy tycoon. <laughs> <laughs> like an oil tycoon, like a, a Victorian era no, energy electricity. tycoon. Electricity, electricity, electricity. But like modern day, or like still Victorian? Oh, still Victorian. <laughs> okay, that's ironic, and I love it. <laughs> Gets yeah, out that's... in the light, so he invents electricity, right? <laughs> that, yeah, that's yeah. kind of brilliant. It's wild. Ah. <laughs> uh. There was also, like, a lot of secondary plots about business deals, which may also have been why it died an early death. You know, that's what I wanted in my uh, Dracula adaptation. The kids these well, days, they want my, a sexy business vampire. My, my favorite part is when uh, Dracula is reading over the uh, legal documents that Jonathan Harker brings him. That's the best part of the book. That's Dracula's favorite part too. Um, one, of, one of the things, one of the things that the short-lived TV show did that I actually really, without irony, loved was that they made Lucy and Mina explicitly in love, mm. which in the book they're only sort of suggested to be in love. Um, but yeah, this or yeah, it was a very strong un a very very strong attraction between the two and a much more explicit crush um, from Lucy's angle. Hmm. Uh, but I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, what is stuck in my head this week. So I just came back from vacation and I read two incredible books, neither of which I'm about to talk to you about, because the Oscar nominations came out today and they are hot garbage <laughs> and are... I cannot... Stop thinking about them. They're so bad this year. They are so boring and so, like, peak. <sighs> old white man. It's all old white man movies. Yeah, it's all old white man movies. And it's all stuff that was, like, 3D printed to be a nominee. And I'm just so bored, you guys. Like... The Joker got like seven nominations. What it are we got even got? Eleven doing? nominations. It is the right. most nominated uh, okay, so of the uh, of the group. Uh, I'm gonna that be is wild. yeah. I'm gonna be excited when it wins uh, best uh, documentary feature and best short animated because uh, it's just been nominated for everything. Which, um, I, Martha, I know you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Sarah, have you seen it? I have not, and I and I'm yeah. I didn't boycott it or anything. I just didn't have, um, like I, I I couldn't pin down when exactly it came out because I saw ads for it for what feels like three million years. Yeah, and yes. um, so I it, it's what I wanted to see because I was curious about it, but uh, have not yet. I 
I'll see it eventually, but I refuse to pay money for it. So, like, when it comes on HBO or whatever, I'll end up getting drunk and hate watching it. Because um, I just have no interest in it. Like, actively no interest in it. it. They can't make me. Normally, <laughs> I am. Normally, I am a person for whom a lot of my watching this time of year gets determined by what is being nominated for Oscars. I'm not going to do it. I, I don't think it should have been made. I don't like the points that they're making. I don't like the culture surrounding it. I think it's absurd. Um, I'm mad that it exists, and I'm mad that it got awards nominations when like uh, I mean the farewell didn't get mm-hmm. any nominees like mm-hmm. that's insane to me Greta Gerwig did not get nominated for best director that's which that's is psychotic like they nominated Todd Phillips to do a Scorsese because he did a Scorsese knockoff and they nominated Scorsese and Greta Gerwig mm-hmm. gets shut out it's outrageous the one thing First of all, I hope Bong Joon-ho wins everything. Like, give him best short, best animated short. Like, just (laughs) hand him the award ceremony. They won't because, as I was discussing on Facebook today, because that's the kind of person I am, um, the best international film and best animated film categories seem largely to exist these days so they don't have to give best picture to a foreign or an animated film Mm -hmm. so parasite will be winning best foreign film and not best picture Mm -hmm. a bit Um, of confusion i maybe you guys can clear this up for me because i know that there's a lot of production house reasons for this especially like italian american films and british american films but i've observed that uh british produced films are not put in the in the foreign film category it's, is it me it's foreign it language me? films is, is that what yeah. it is yeah it's okay. it's, yeah, it's, it's a language because yeah. that seems okay because that seems extra weird to me um okay well, i just wanted why to I mention that yeah i believe it was nigeria either nigeria yes. or ghana got dis- their, their submission yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. their submission um, got declined because yeah. it's in English. Even though English is the uh, official language of Nigeria. Well, if it's any balm to your wounded soul, Bong Joon-ho, when he was asked about the Oscars, he said that he wasn't very concerned about it because it's a local award anyway and not an, an international award. <laughs> um, and that's the that's energy I want to bring into 2020 with me. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> The local award. It's for Californians. He's like, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> and he's not wrong. No, it's really not. Yeah, I actually, I am always interested if this will be the year that a different award show supplants the Oscars in terms of like legitimacy, mm-hmm. because I feel like we've been claim, we've been, we as in the movie going public, have been complaining that the Oscars do not reflect. Um, like the actual state of film, but it doesn't seem to change anything. Well, um, it's like there's not a whole lot of other. The Golden Globes are even worse than the Oscars. Um, well, that's true. So, is this the like, year that point, you're looking at like awards come back? <laughs> <laughs> is this it? Is this our time? Well, it does make me wonder if. If someday something like the Independent Spirit Awards or the Critics' Choice Awards will be mm-hmm. weighed 
more heavily in terms of prestige. Mm -hmm. I just, I feel like somebody with more clout than me would have to make that decision. Right. Um, And also, I'm absolutely part of the problem because I can whine all day and I will still be in my living room starting at five o'clock with that red carpet to watch the whole circus show. So I'm part of the problem. Tune into this podcast um, in two episodes when we're going to be discussing the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, so, yeah, that's what I'll be thinking about for the next, like, four weeks. <laughs> because the ceremony is absurdly, it is absurdly early this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's usually, like, the end of February, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, end of February, beginning of March. And this year it is February The week 9th. after the Super Bowl. Week after or week before? Week after. Yeah. Super Bowls on Groundhog Day. Okay. I don't know anything about football. I just looked all this up yesterday, uh, so that's the only reason I know it. <laughs> but speaking of football, we are going to take a quick recess, and when we come back, we are going to talk about all the ways that masculinity is bad for us. Um, <laughs> oh, football, like playing football at recess. I thought you were going to do like a halftime reference but that works that's good oh no that was a that was a there's no ethical way to watch football joke um (laughs) true that bold i love it all right we'll be right back folks Listeners, we are going to be getting into some uh, sensitive topics. Uh, we are going to be dismantling certain characters that have achieved a certain status in our popular culture. And we are going to be talking about creators, fans, and these characters in a less than um, flattering manner. Uh, so if anything that we are about to say enrages you, uh, please feel free to delete your tweet and not at me. Yep. Um, <laughs> we are going to be getting into the idealization of toxic masculinity. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking and looking at some characters in popular culture that are bad people, uh, but have attracted a following um, and and an idealization among a certain type of fan. We're going to be talking about it, about um, what is it about these characters that we think makes them attractive to people. Uh, We're going to be talking about um, the ability or inability of these characters to process or cope with emotion and what we think that says about their portrayals and how people respond to them. And we're going to be looking at some specific uh, characters within these scopes as well. This uh, conversation is going to be a little loose, so bear with us. I think we all have a lot of thoughts and feelings, or at least I do, um, about the uh, stuff we're about to get into. Um, so 
I'm going to start us off really quick by just giving some examples of the kinds of characters we're talking about. Uh, because I've been kind of dancing around this and speaking in some pretty vague language. Uh, but to kind of put this into context, we are talking about characters like Tyler Durden from Fight Club, uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad, Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty, uh, and Rorschach from Watchmen as sort of examples of characters that within the texts of their shows are not good people, are not people to be um, idolized or looked up to or uh, emulated in any way, but have ended up with fan bases that are not only idolize them, but look up to them and consider them to be aspirational in some way. Um, so I would like to kick us off with this question of why do we think these characters um, become uh, like become the focus for idolization? So I've got sort of two thoughts on this one. Uh, the first one is that all of these characters are um, at least a primary protagonist, if not the pri primary protagonist of whatever work they're in. So we're used to consuming media where the protagonist is the person that we're rooting for, uh, and that just inherently puts us in a, a headspace and an emotional space to sympathize with the character far more than if they were presented as an antagonist or simply just as a like secondary or tertiary character. Um, so I, I think that's a big part of it that, like, you know, wh whether they begin purely obviously bad, such as, like, a Tony Soprano type um, or, or a Rick uh, Sanchez type, or whether they sort of break bad one might say such as a for example walter white <laughs> type um they are inherently sympathetic from the get-go because they are our window into the universe that they are inhabiting um the other thing i think is that it's frequently these are characters who are in inherently somewhat glamorous positions um a lot of the people on our list are mobsters in some way um Tony Soprano, we talked about Scarface, a lot of Scorsese characters are in this uh, situation, like the guys in Casino, the guys in Goodfellas. Um, and it's just an inherently sort of glamorous lifestyle where even if the point of the movie is that this is a bad lifestyle, um, it's still like, you know, the first half of the movie is the glamour part of it, and that's what people remember. Um, one example is Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, who became an absolute icon and, like, hero figure for Wall Street dude bros in the 80s, 90s, aughts, and now. And he was created as a character that was not supposed to be exemplary, but was supposed to be, like, the the example of, I guess, exemplary in the sense of he was all that was wrong with Wall Street. Like, greed is good was supposed to be a negative statement, and it became a positive one because people saw his lifestyle and were like, oh, I want that. Um, so it's it's like you can't make a you know, a movie about this glamorous lifestyle, even if you're going to be negative in its portrayal, because you're still showing the glamour. While you were describing that, I sort of, I sort, I sort of made an, a note. As we were talking about these movies, I also realized that these characters um, are stylized to be apathetic in a way that is endlessly quotable. Hmm. And that makes them very memorable. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like they, yeah, they... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I actually, 
I think that you are mostly right in some of these cases, but at least in the cases of Fight Club, Rick and Morty, and Watchmen, those characters are not the main characters. Like, Tyler Durden is not the main character of Fight Club. Also, Fight Club is not a glamorous movie. <laughs> right, and, 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 like, Rorschach is not a glamorous person either. Um, so I, I'm wondering, like, what else is it about these? Because I think, I think it's their conviction. Like, it is the characters... It is the character's perspective that they are always right. That they are frequently the smartest person in the room. Um, that everyone else is essentially worthless, which puts them in charge um, very like drastically and easily. And I'm wondering if that is where um, some of the like adoration comes in like they're easy people to idolize because that's what they're demanding from their um from the other characters on the show mm -hmm. and receiving that kind of like rick sucks um <laughs> but he also is adored by most of the characters on the show and he's as he you know is never hesitates to tell us the smartest person in the universe and without context those are both things that I can see somebody being like I want that um, and then it's just the context where he's being like arrested by the uh, inter-universal police and hates himself and doesn't actually have any like real affection in his life like these are the things that tell us that he his life is not one to be emulated but I can see where if you are blinded by the levels of achievement and success and like personal intelligence I, I don't know like where he has succeeded on a personal level could kind of blind you to those subtleties I guess I don't know I don't think it's very subtle but um I don't so for, for, for Rick, I don't think he's adored by the other characters, but they all put up with him um, in a way that is like enough, right? Like I think Beth adore I think Beth adores him. No, I think that they seek a lot of validation from him. I think Morty mm. does too, mm -hmm. and so they're constantly sort of enamoring themselves to the idea of who he could be, and he's constantly disappointing them. And that is sort of the entire show, you know. Um, waiting for Rick to be a better person. And the spoiler is that he doesn't ever become one. Even in moments where it looks like he's really made a sacrifice, the next episode happens and he's like, oh, that was part of my plan to wubba dubba dib dib, you know? And he never really changes. But there's always this idea that he might, you know? Uh, and I think that is... I'll be honest with you, I really like the show Rick and Morty. But I have. Oh, I do too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't, but I, but I haven't watched the newest season, and part of it is because there comes a. I think for a lot of these characters, for me, and I'm sure for you know many people, people want their characters to be redeemed in some fashion, and I don't know. I feel like they're. I feel like all of these characters are interesting because they don't care if they're redeemed or not, really. So. 
Yeah, and, and you know, we, we all just sort of commented on this a second ago, but, like, I think we're all fans of Rick and Morty, and we all hate Rick and Morty fans. Um, <laughs> with, like, capital F fans, the ones who are screeching about um, Szechuan sauce at McDonald's and whatever. Oh um, right. And that, that was sort of, like, the genesis of this topic was the idea that, like, you know, here's a show that we all like, but we all recognize that Rick is, like, a toxic, bad character who should not be emulated or looked up to in the slightest. And yet there is a, like, contingent of the fandom that has the absolute opposite, like, understanding mm-hmm. of him as a character. I think something you said, Martha, really stuck with me, how every every one of these men believes that they are the smartest person in the room. And a certain discourse around, I'm thinking specifically of, like, Walter White and Rick and uh, Tyler Durden, um, is that they are shown to us as like teacher figures almost. And so when people talk about them, they Mm. emulate those speaking styles. Like when people talk about how smart and deep and philosophical Rick and Morty is as a show, they're kind of taking on this uh, teacherly vibe. And when people are over explaining Fight Club to me, they also like to do this. (laughs) Yes. Even though I've seen it so many times and read it. Um, And so there's this idea that you can be it's strange, I think, especially for Tyler Durden, because I mean, what made him glamorous wasn't who he was; it was that it was Brad Pitt playing him, right? Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. think there's this idea that you can kind of not be the strongest person, but if you're smart, you can still kind of be this sexy, dangerous person. And I think that that has become quite a cliche for these kinds of. Um, toxic male characters but i see that emulated in in the fandoms themselves like trying to emulate even the speaking patterns of these very intelligent seemingly intelligent people um which is fun they're all fictional people so people trying to talk like them and and create a whole sort of almost academia around them feels very cyclical like it's just going round and around and around but I think that's another big appeal is that they're smart and, oh, maybe I'm not, you know, the most athletic, but I'm smart. I could be these people, you know? Well, and that touches on um, something that Pete brought up before we started recording about the fact that m- most, if not all of these characters, I think probably all, but I, I don't want to commit to anything and then have it be wrong, um, have a male like sidekick or you know to use the parlance of uh the internet a beta male sidekick a foil um that they are that they are in charge of so like rick has morty tyler durden has ed norton's character whose name i can't remember his name um, is walter white has walter white has what's his name i've never seen breaking bad but jesse, um, right yeah has poor jesse um so they all have these characters that I think allows them to do exactly what you're talking about, Sarah, allows them to be that kind of instructional mentor figure. And I also think that for fans of these things, idolizing the one in charge, even if they're terrible, means that they're not the Morty. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Well, by, by deciding to be Rick, it means that you're not the one getting turned into a horrible mutant and like pushed through some kind of 
uh, interdimensional, like, horrible torture device. Like... <laughs> Well, and even in in movies where it's not necessarily a mentor relationship, there's often like that sort of like beta foil character sometimes who's in opposition. Um, and here I'm thinking of Taxi Driver, where uh, I, I kind of forgot the Taxi Driver has a weirdly stacked cast, but like Albert Brooks plays a a sort of like nebbish campaign manager guy um, who's like the other sort of major male character in, in the movie. Um, he's definitely in opposition to De Niro's character in multiple different ways, and he is not what you would necessarily consider, like, a paragon of masculine virtues, um, which which then, like, through that contrast, De Niro sort of inherently becomes, because he's not, you know, Albert Brooks. Um, so it's, even when it's not a mentoring relationship, it's just that setting up of the opposition to, or like, like that foil to like reflect more positively on someone who we should not be you know thinking of positively yeah i guess in watchman it must be night owl although yeah. i don't know why why would that one fails for me because i love night owl so <laughs> i'm a little bit like why wouldn't you want to be night owl but like in the first chapter of watchman um, when like rorschach breaks into night owl's house that is definitely a, a case where like you the reader are like that is an absolute contrast of like action oriented insane Rorschach and like passive schlubby nebbish like night owl. Yeah, for sure. The idea of alter ego mm -hmm. is also I mean, we're just looking at some of the some of the people we're talking about. Um, you know, Tyler Durden's an alter ego. Walter White, you know, Heisenberg's an alter ego. Rorschach mm. and Night Owl are the superhero versions of these real people. Like, they are their own beta males in a lot of these scenarios. And then they uh, flip the dynamic when they choose to. Yeah. And so there's a lot to be said about, I mean, we've mentioned it before, but there's a lot to be said about controlling how your actions are perceived. Because that means you can do anything, but if you can explain it then it's okay. It's like, oh no, you you just didn't understand mm -hmm. what my intention was here. Exactly. Let me put on my weird mask and then I'll explain it again and it will be much clearer, you know. Um, well, and that's hit in a few different ways in The Sopranos where like Tony, like he doesn't have an alter ego, but he's got like his work persona and his home persona. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, when he's he's in therapy, he's doing exactly what you're saying of, like, trying to explain and justify, you know, what he does for a living. Um, and, like, not only to Melfi, but also, I think, in a way to himself. Yeah. I think all these characters, I mean, except maybe, <laughs> I keep going back to Rick, he's, he's self-aware in that he does not care. But, um, you know, Walter White, you know, throughout the entirety of, of Breaking Bad... He has just endless justifications for why he's becoming a more and more ruthless person. Um, you know, he's like, oh, well, it's for my family. You wouldn't understand it's for my family. You know, you wouldn't understand. You know, I had cancer. You wouldn't understand. Yeah. You know, because now it's like my turf. And it's like his actions are escalating, but his excuses are staying very neutral. And he's also, you know, it, I, I think there's, you know, a lot between... Tony Soprano and Walter White in that they go out and do these horrible things, but they're like, but I'm really a family guy. You know, it's really fine. Uh. Well, and that um, 
that segues kind of nicely into this question of what male characters are allowed to show uh, emotion without fear of being not ridiculed, but like without fear of being emasculated, I mm-hmm, guess, mm-hmm. because I, I think it is fairly common in our kind of patriarchal landscape that it is generally frowned upon for men to show the wrong kind of emotion. Like it is, it is sort of a great lie that our pop culture tells us that, um, you know, it's not manly for men to be sensitive or to show affection or to be um, passionate about the wrong kinds of things. This is a lie, by the way, because anybody who goes to a sports bar while a sports game <laughs> is happening will know, know this for the lie that it is. Um, but it is interesting to look at the kind that, Sarah, you, you were talking about this more eloquently than I am right now uh, at the top of the episode. But, like, frequently these characters are hugely emotive. Um, they're just emotion. They're just emotive about, I don't know, manly stuff. Like, right. Well, I was mas- masculine. They're masculinely upset, you know? Yes. Um, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking specifically of, of Rick from Rick and Morty. Um, because his are very dramatic, um, because he is, you know, high, like his high highs and and low lows. And there'll be an episode where he's doing all these crimes. He's at that weird, like TGI Fridays type planet. Um, Oh, uh, 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 Shoney's. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's there and he's living large. And there's also episodes where he is sobbing in his lat in his garage lab um, because of a failed relationship, or he is just pouring his heart out to a stranger because he does feel ethically conflicted, but he doesn't want anyone to really think that hard about it. And it's interesting because in those scenarios, we see the character as being very vulnerable and the the surrounding the supporting characters don't um i also think about uh, one one of the characters that i think about as being a very emotional character um is darth vader <laughs> i i because he one might very, say he is ruled by emotion he is ruled by emotions but he you know he's considered so cool and just like such a you know, such a icon in, like, guy's fandom. But he is very emotional. He acts on a lot of instinct and not a lot of military strategy. And, when you know, he... Yeah, he, he uses anger. I mean, if you're going back to the Anakin days, like, he uses anger, which is always fueled by sadness and loneliness. And, again, we, we can recognize these things outside of what the characters are seeing... But I feel like it, for some fans, it could be maybe an outlet that, oh, here's this powerful person and they're having emotions. And then they're not taking a step back to see that their emotions are leading them to make even worse decisions because they're not actually processing their emotions very well. Um, And I think about that with 
we were talking about the um, the new Joker movie, mm-hmm. and even though I haven't seen it, I mean, I'm very familiar with the character of the Joker, and you know, he handles his emotions very violently, and yet he's probably one of the most popular villains. Um, and people see him as very humanized in a way, which is interesting because that subconsciously equates humanization to violence. And I think that's where we get into the toxicity of these male characters, where you're confusing recognizable human emotions with aspirational human emotions. That's the tagline for the episode, by the way. Like no, like being able to look at something and say, "Oh, that's a human," doesn't mean, "Oh, that's the best human." And I feel like sometimes we just want to like something so bad that we just don't give ourselves the space to really think about what we're seeing. So, well, and I am a person. I am a person who is very in favor of um, being able to enjoy, like, quote unquote, problematic media, as long as you are also able to discuss and recognize what makes it problematic Mm -hmm. like nothing that i enjoy is perfect um except for detective pikachu which has no flaws (laughs) Um, one of the ways that i enjoy and process the media that i like is you know pointing out and talking through and kind of picking apart the things that I think it could have done better. Like, I I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I want my media to do better. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's a lot wrong with saying, I like this, therefore it is perfect, Mm -hmm. which is another issue um, in the way I think people process media nowadays. Um, But yeah, being able to differentiate, like, I like this character versus I want to be this character. well, I, is a is a critical thinking skill that I think is lacking here. I I think you're exactly right with what you said like half a second ago, which is that there's there's that bridge between I like a thing and this thing is perfect, um, and I think that that is sort of like underlying a lot of the you know current toxicness in fandom right now. Um, and then yeah, going from there is like I like this thing, I like this character. Um, Therefore, I want to be this character is sort of like in in the same boat, um, because I you know I speaking of, like there's lots of characters that we've been discussing in this set that like I really like as characters. I think that they are interesting or well developed or um, you know just like fascinating psychological studies, but in no way would I want to like use them as a template for my own existence. <laughs> Like, Rorschach is incredibly frustrating as a character, but he's a fascinating psychological study in, it, like, an extremist um, uh, existentialist. Um, but, like, that's not good. <laughs> right. And I think these characters are designed... I mean, I think what some of this fandom does is it, it, flat, it flattens this complex idea. Because I think that characters like that are made to be interesting, and they're made to be talked about, Mm -hmm. but they're not meant to be heroes. I mean, we, I know antiheroes tossed around a lot, but they're literally not made to even be someone you'd consider the, 
the victor of a story. They're made to be, wow, this is this is an interesting character. This is an interesting movie. What an odd villain. I don't think it does the content you love a lot of justice to be like rubber stamping it because you can imagine yourself doing some of these things. Mm-hmm. It, it removes a lot of subjectivity from art, I think, to believe that because it is similar to what you want the world to be, that it is objectively... And I see this a lot on Twitter. I need to take a Twitter break, seriously. Um, people saying movies are objectively good or objectively bad, and that's not real. But it's because the characters they love, they're over-relating to. And if that's a toxic character, that's even more collapsing your idea of objective and subjective reality. And that sounds like a like I'm you know, gloom and doom about it. But if you can say something's objectively good and like you guys are saying, not really step back and analyze it. My thing is perfect because it's my thing. You're not able to see all the nuances of these characters and these stories. And you're going to end up liking characters that you don't even fully know. Yeah. I used to joke a couple of years ago about like X being ob- like X piece of art being objectively good, uh, fully knowing that obviously art is subjective but that sort of, uh, I stopped doing that once Twitter started making that, like, not a joke, but a thing that people actually say and believe, uh, which is, you know, probably good that I stopped joking about that, but also deeply frustrating that that's the, the direction we went. Well, and I think it's obvious, too, when someone is like, oh, it's objectively the best movie, and then they wink at you, and then when they say something's objectively the best and they yell at you for disagreeing... Mm-hmm. No one enjoys that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because Detective Pikachu really is without fault. And, I'll, and I, it is, I'll go to bed. utterly <laughs> least, least toxic character. Highly aspirational. Very wholesome. It's Baby's first uh, noir movie. Baby's first Blade Runner. But with Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, they can go straight from that to Brick. <laughs> yes yes oh <laughs> uh, so do we want to return to um pete talk me through this uh talk me through this war movie quote that you've got on here um, so there's a quote that I'm absolutely going to butcher because I'm half remembering it and didn't look it up properly. Uh, but it's along the lines of, it's impossible to make an anti-war war movie because war looks glamorous on screen. Um, even something like Saving Private Ryan, which is like supposed to show the, the like horror of war. It's shot gorgeously by Spielberg and Janusz Kaminski and just like, you watch it and you're like, that's horrible, but also it's so like fascinating looking. Um, I haven't seen 1917 yet. I feel like it'll be the same sort of situation. Um, and I, I think it's similar with a lot of these characters that end up being like toxic characters who get idealized. Many of them are in roles that are inherently in some way, shape or form glamorous. Um, many of them are gangsters or even if they're not in glamorous roles, they are sort of like treated in a in a with a soft lens as it were um like they're they're presented in the the best light um and so it's sort of 
many of these movies are were created with the intention of not having these characters be sympathetic. Um, Fincher has come out and said that, like, you're not supposed to, uh, you know, find Tyler Durden appealing at all. Um, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, like, they, the, the, the screenwriter was, like, appalled that anyone would, like, agree with his opinions and, and, like, want to emulate him because he was not supposed to be a character that you agreed with. He was supposed to be a character that you, like, disagreed with and found, like, not disgusting, but, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, bad. But because they're, like, they're in these cool movies and they are the main character of these cool movies or shows, the, the like, awfulness of them sort of gets washed away and all that's left is the coolness. Uh, and, w- and we were talking earlier, Sarah, you were talking about, like, how characters are just kind of cool. Like, Darth Vader is, is inherently cool. Um, and, you know, we were talking off mic before this, but, like, Tarantino is, like, the A number one person of this, where, like, he, he takes... Um, you know, gangsters or murderers or whomever and, and dials the cool factor up to 11 and then, hey, sweep. Right, and I his his movies are particularly interesting and the fandom of his movies is particularly interesting because he is very much who he is and his stories have a lot of style, but you know so little about the people in them and yet they become these iconoclasts. You know so little about each individual person in Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. And yet, again, they're endlessly quotable. They're endlessly cool. They're stylized. They're, they're, the just, they're just ciphers of cool. They're just, yeah, they're just walking embodiments of, gosh, I wish I could walk out on my job and be that guy today. Yeah, Even though they, they all typically die pretty horribly. Um, that's you. But, but like, but before they do, like, they control the room. They can talk to, like, they say what's on their mind. They can, you know, um, they they have commanding presences even when they're just, you know, uh, second-rate enforcers, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. I will say this. Um, talking about Pulp Fiction is interesting because we were talking about a lot of these sort of characters have a have a lead and then sort of a sidekick or an alpha and a beta, if you want to go with that terminology. And in Pulp Fiction, one of the most interesting characters is just this random guy that can clean up scenes really well. Mm-hmm. And he, like, there's nothing, like, macho or scary about him. And he is literally the most interesting Tarantino character, in my opinion. And he is not really deeply involved in any crime, and he just wants to, you know, go back home because they woke him up. <laughs> and, um, but he, he is kind of scary because, like, of the way that other characters are reacting to him. Like, um, oh, you know, sorry. Vic Vega, who is, like, the, the cool, like, you know, murder guy, is treating this guy with a, enormous amounts of respect and, like, mm-hmm. awe and fear. So, like, even just through that, it's like, yeah, it's a random Harvey Keitel guy in a suit looking a little schlubby talking, you know, however he's talking. It's not Keitel, but whatever. Um even with that you're like oh this guy is somebody he's talking with authority he's commanding the room um you know and and he's being treated with respect by these guys that we like we ourselves are like you know being treat like being told are cool guys that we should be emulating so if like the cool guys are respecting this guy then like then he's got to be super cool i'm going to bring up a character that was not 
previously discussed off mic, but I think is very important as we were discussing Tarantino characters and toxic masculinity. And I would like to bring up the 1990s character Johnny Bravo. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, that is a name I have not heard in a long time. Right. I feel like so that was now... ahead of its time. I feel like that was ahead of its time, right? Because he was supposed to be really silly. <laughs> Now that this is now that this is officially the best episode of Did You Do Your Homework Ever? <laughs> yeah, like he, he's a send up no, I think of like exactly what we're talking about. Although he is, did anyone not think that he was a parody? Like, did but, he have any? That. Well, that's what I'm wondering, because I feel like I, I feel like we are of an age where we were old enough to kind of see that he was silly. But I'm wondering if there's any reading of that in any of the versions where he's just like cool, but oblivious. You know what I mean? I don't know. I, I just can't help but see him thinking he is very cool, thinking he's in control of the room, thinking people are reacting to him with respect. And everyone's just giving him a wide berth because they're like, oh, this guy is really, you know, got odd stuff going on. He is like the he is like the fan of himself, <laughs> of this ideal masculinity, and I just wanted that on record somewhere that I believe this. I love it. <laughs> well, and we were talking off mic too uh, earlier about like how Kylo Ren is kind of this fan for Darth Vader. Like he is, like he knows. Obviously, Star Wars is weird because you've got your Manichaean Force uh, light side dark side thing, um, and also it's his grandfather. But like. He's the kid who's like, no, Darth Vader's super cool. I want to be like Darth Vader. I'm going to make a stupid helmet and put it on. And, and you know, I'm going to really commit to the dark side. Um, because Vader was cool. He is. He's like the embodiment of all of the fans who are sort of diehard for this idea of a character, even when that character no longer exists on screen. You know, I think... And Star Wars is a tricky one because it spans generations. And it is. It's when when it was revealed that Kylo Ren was doing everything in this sort of fanatical attempt to do honor to this very problematic character. It felt like a message to sort of these gatekeeping Star Wars fans, didn't it? That's what I thought it was supposed to be. Like, I thought Kylo Ren in The Force Awakens was supposed to be sort of pointing a finger at anybody who, like, dresses up as Vader or a Stormtrooper for Halloween and says, this isn't healthy, this isn't good, this is sort of a, a one-way ticket. Like, in, in the hyperbolic language of Star Wars, this mm -hmm. is like a one-way ticket to self-destruction um and then even in the last jedi he kind of has a realization that his like he has to move past his idolization uh and then rise of skywalker sure did happen uh but before that <laughs> i thought we had a pretty clear vision of this character who was damaging himself and being shown to damage himself Mm -hmm. from this, like, idolization of this past figure. Mm -hmm. 
and he's another character that I think is interesting because he is shown to be he I mean it's never shielded that he's an incredibly vulnerable character. He is attempting to be respected by sort of using someone else's clout and he is constantly frustrated that it's not happening. Oh. That's a that's a really interesting point that he is wrapping himself in the iconography of a character he thinks is cool as a way to mm-hmm. to earn his own coolness like to, to ride those coattails and i i think you know we were talking a while a while earlier about like rick and morty's relationship and how like if you're if you're not the rick then you're the morty so you need to act like rick um you know because because that way you know that you're not morty um and I think similarly, like if you're if you're acting like these cool tough guys, then you're taking on that demeanor. You're taking on that like their coolness, and and you know, in your own mind, able to use it for your own like coolness to to in, influence like increase your own influence. Oh, absolutely! It's like if you know, it's the epitome of sort of fake it till you make it. It's mm-hmm. like okay, I'm not gonna be the doormat. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the stomping and. I mean, that's absolutely lizard brain human nature. Right. And it's, like, I I don't want to go into too much about, you know, the final trilogy because it's early, in my opinion, it's early days a little bit for people who haven't seen Rise of Skywalker. But I feel like there's a lot of interesting ideas explored with Kylo Ren. I don't feel like quite got the time <laughs> that would have been required to make a firm statement on it. But... I feel like he does exemplify some of the worst parts of wanting to belong and wanting to justify bad behavior and wanting to, you know, use someone else's credibility to make your own seem better. And yet, again, he's the primary protagonist. We see things through his eyes. He is a character that I think a lot of people relate to. And I'm not even sure if he's one of the more toxic ones that we've discussed because he does acknowledge a lot of times that, you know, well, maybe I went a little far with this whole my grandfather's skull thing, you know? So it's, a, it's just an interesting, it's a, it's a weirdly self-reflective character in this sea of incredibly toxic characters. Um, he still is genocidal, though. So, um, you know, objectively not the best. Objectively not the best. <laughs> Kyle Ren, not the best. It's not the best. You know, he's fine. Not the best. Um, well, it's like know. it's my favorite Brooklyn Nine Nine quote. Mm-hmm. Cool story, still murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that feels like a good place to wrap up. Unless you guys have any other closing thoughts on the topic. No, that sounds good to me. We did it. We fixed toxic masculinity. <laughs> we solved it, guys. <laughs> I feel like we've done that before on the show. Uh, we, we fixed problematic faves uh, a while back. So, good job, us. Oh, true. <laughs> Hooray. I, I do want to double down on one thought um, before we totally leave. And we've said it a lot, but I, I do think... I do think it's an important distinction to know that if you like these characters or you like shows that have similar characters, that that's completely fine, that there's nothing wrong with liking a character that was probably designed to be liked as long as you don't try to change the good things about yourself 
to become apathetic and bad to the people around you. So I think that there is an idea, and I think you guys both said this really beautifully in the episode, there's this idea that if you like something, you cannot critique it. And as always, you can critique anything and understand it better. Um, Because I definitely had a Fight Club poster for many years, proudly. And I don't think that makes my viewing bad. I just think that I wouldn't want to grow up to be Tyler Durden. Yes. (laughs) Criticize your media. Pick apart the stuff you love. Nothing you love is wrong. But, you know, don't want to... Don't live your life trying to be Tyler Durden. Kill your sacred I think cows. is the message of this episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. It was delightful to have you back. If people, if people would like to find you online, where can they do so? Um, I am at Instagram at Tiny Period Revelations, where I post artwork and projects and pete where can our listeners find you you can find me on twitter at pico 3000 p-i-k-o 3000 where i'm doing politics and pop culture um 2020 is shaping up to be a year for both of those things my brain is already (laughs) leaking through my ears (laughs) uh and you can find me on all the places at magical martha um, I'm having my biannual, I think I'm going to quit Twitter. I won't actually quit Twitter. I'll just think really hard about it and get mad at myself when I don't. Um, ah, the, but you the, can the normal also... state for Twitter users. Oh yeah. Take pictures of pelicans <laughs> and a video of the huge fish that I fed while I was on my vacation. <laughs> um, you can follow the show at DYDYH podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can send us an email at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, um, Google Play, Spotify, all the places you would normally find podcasts. Um, and alternating on our feed with us every other Wednesday is the other podcast that I do with friend of the show, Marin, where we watch streaming YA rom-coms and then talk about them. Uh, We just concluded a discussion about the Princess Diaries, and next week I believe we are talking about the perennial classic Ice Princess. Um, I also write a newsletter, which I publish whenever I feel like it, uh, and you can find that at tinyletter.com backslash MagicalMartha. Pete, am I leaving anything out? I don't think so. Wonderful. We will be back in two weeks with a return guest in front of the show, Joel Kenyon, to talk about a topic that we are in the process of determining. Uh, Fun fact, you just suggested uh, toxic fandom. (laughs) Well, I don't want to do this twice in a row. (laughs) TBD. uh, Stay tuned for that. Um, But until then, uh, enjoy your break, and we will see you next time. No homework yet, but... I'm sure that we will have something for you to uh, read, watch, or listen uh, in the fullness of time. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. 
class dismissed. My Dracula budget is a dollar and nine cents. So <laughs> is that the whole season? Yes. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was not uh, beloved. I here's what's crazy. Ninety four percent of viewers who watched it liked it. So they were not asking like the fans. They were I don't know. That's weird. That, that seems like a, really, a strongly self selecting group. That's and I really think that only like 12 people watched <laughs> but they were ride or die for it I think that should be respected <laughs> 11 of our 12 fans loved it <laughs> 11 out of 12 oh and I wonder if the, I wonder if the 12th was Jonathan Reese Myers. <laughs>